0: Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 through 31. It's located in our church Bibles on page 599 or 600. Please stand if you're able as we read from the Old Testament. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, and emptiness. Will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood, that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out to heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows them away. And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Please be seated.
1: Let's pray as we come to our study in Isaiah chapter 40. Taking our cue from Psalm 119. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Father, we think of All the things that we've kind of cerebrally brought into worship with us this morning, all the worries, all of the angst, the anxiety about bills or about children or about relational disagreements or about something at work, and we long, Lord, for you to give us your peace. And we long, Lord, to cling to your promises, which you have made to us through Scripture and preeminently through the person of your Son. So, Lord, we pray you would encourage us this morning from Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. So, having just attended our anxiety uh, workshop this weekend, I realize how much I have needed it. Being all stressed out. Seven times over the threat of nuclear annihilation, three times by the danger of killer lasers, twice by the threat of bioweapons killing us all, twice by danger to the world's money supply, twice by struggle with a violent drug cartel, once by the prospect of a nasty global arms deal gone wrong, once for the fear of Silicon Valley being destroyed by earthquake, once for threat to the world's oil supply, once for danger to the US space program, once for the menace of nerve gas from space creating a master race, once for fear that Bolivia will lose safe drinking water, twice for direct threats to British intelligence, and twice at the specter of revenge against one particular secret agent, I refer, of course, to 59 years of watching James Bond in all 26 movies, concluding with Daniel Craig in No Time to Die. It is anxiety-inducing. Interestingly, a new study which analyzes all of those movies, because this is what PhDs do, has come up with a different assessment of the danger. A Dutch epidemiologist has examined all the health risks to the personal health and safety of 007 and has concluded that what ultimately explains his recklessness is that he likely contracted toxoplasmosis from Ernst Stavro Blofeld's cat. (laughs) But whatever the danger, one of the comforting reassurances of James Bond's career is that he almost never gets fatally hurt. Not so, sadly. For us. We live in a world of dangers. That's why we're anxious. We have reason to be. But as we look at this chapter in Isaiah this morning, I want to ask you the big question for Christians, which I think is a very useful question for us to ask quite regularly of ourselves. What is the worst that could happen to you? You see, Isaiah as a whole book can be roughly divided into two parts. The first part, which Zach concluded with last week in chapter 39, deals with the danger. It deals with God's judgment upon Israel and upon the nations for their rebellion against him. And the second part, beginning in Isaiah chapter 40 through to chapter 66, is full of comfort for his people. It is the answer to his judgment. So, chapter 40, I hope to show you, is where everything changes in Isaiah. It's the turn of the tide. But to understand it, and to understand our own purpose in this dark and doomed world, we need to look at the promises here for us as the people of God, within God's comfort. So, Please turn to chapter 40 in the Bible. You can find it on page 599 in the church Bible uh, or on your phone, no doubt. I want to look at the chapter under three headings, three sections which describe, I think, um, the contours of our lives as we trust God, looking to him for his comfort, his unique place for us. First, these first 11 verses, God's only Comfort for us is plain, isn't it? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These words have been seared into our brains. For me, it's with music. I don't know if you... Recall uh, Messiah from Handel's work, probably uh, for the last three centuries, the most searing form of remembrance of these words. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. But what do those words mean, and why are they significant? Let's deal first with what they mean. Who, looking at these verses here, who's speaking these words? Well, obviously, these are the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. To whom is God addressing these words? Well, these are words, he says, to my people, chapter 40, verse 1. And what comfort is God offering his people Well, notice this isn't sentimental comfort of the kind that you will find on occasion in the Times Dispatch. I thought yesterday's was probably their best headline of the year. Therapy dogs offer cuddly comfort in courthouse setting. It's more than that here. The original force of the verb here is to give strength, to be with strength, to comfort, to be strengthened much. And how will his people be strengthened? What news will bring them the comfort they need? Well, hear this news, that their warfare, literally their season of being at war, has finally come to an end. And who have they been at war with? Well, we may say it's obvious reading this, listening these uh, last weeks to these first 39 chapters. She has been at war with the empire of Assyria. But here is the odd thing. And it's odd, because it's one of the few things that liberal and conservative commentators will agree on, that chapters 40 through through 66 are actually not written to the people of Isaiah's day. This has been so obvious to liberal commentators that they've insisted that there must be another author. How could the first Isaiah possibly speak with such accuracy in these chapters to events concerning the return from exile when that was 160 years into the future from the first writing of the book of Isaiah. For that to be true, Isaiah, they posit, would have to be relying on a supernatural source. And we know that couldn't possibly be happening, so there has to be a second author, a deutero Isaiah, as they say. But strikingly, there's no disagreement about the audience. These words are spoken not to the Jerusalem of 700 BC, but to Israel in exile awaiting release to go to the new uh, place where they will build Jerusalem in 540 BC. So the war in question here, I would suggest to you, is plainly not the war with Assyria. That came to an end. It came to an end with the destruction of Sennacherib's army before the walls of Jerusalem, and before the assassination of the conqueror. You might remember Byron's poem, The Destruction of Sennacherib. And the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal, and the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. So does warfare with either Assyria or Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, explain the causal connection here between Israel's sin and her exile? The answer is no. So who have they been at war with? Well, the warfare in question here is war with God. It's so simple a point, but if their world's danger describes our world's danger as it does, it changes everything about the way that we should view our lives, and about the chief threat that we should worry about. What is of most important to God, from his point of view, reading these verses, is that warfare which keeps human beings from him. You may recall this is one of the first things that Jesus said about his own mission in John chapter three to Nicodemus. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And from what were they being saved? Well, from that war with God, which will end with his judgment. And people need to know this. He is still the sole instrument of our peace. There is no work that we can do, no work of conquest, no work of penitence, no work of religious service, no work of sacrificial payment. Christ is the peace that God has gifted you in the face of warfare between God, and human beings. So look at the end of verse 2. There's no suggestion here that Israel's suffering has in some way paid for her own sins. That's not the case. In fact, the fuller clue to what this means won't be revealed until chapter 53. But the likely interpretation is that what Israel has received doubly for her sins is not punishment, but God's pardon And what this means is that for God's people, their real danger has indeed, in his peace, come to an end at the point of God's forgiveness for their sin. When I was in London a few weeks ago, we sat down to a family meal at my brother's place. And as it does, uh, the question of religion came up because my niece was describing her experience in her Catholic high school. And she told us, they told us we would go to hell if we didn't go to church Now, nobody at the table thought that that was true, but one person who knew that uh, while, indeed, if you didn't go to church, you wouldn't necessarily go to hell, if you didn't go to church, you wouldn't hear the gospel and so therefore might be in danger of going to hell, he said nothing. To my shame, I owe my niece a little explanation of the gospel, and I'm resolved to write to her despite my cowardice on that occasion. And why is that important? Well, it's important because of all the dangers and fears facing us, of all the things that might come up around a dinnertime conversation about anxiety, none is so nearly important as the fact that human beings are at war with their Creator. This is not a thing of history. It is not a thing of the Old Testament. Simply, it is still the fact. It is still what defines our world. So what could be worse than the worst thing that could happen to you in this life? Only to discover that in the next life, which will come, that you were excluded from God's presence forever by your choice not to make peace with Him, or your friend's choice not to make peace with Him, or your family's choice not to make peace with Him. That is the priority message, and that is the priority which God presses at His people with in this chapter. That Isaiah, as you know, has been called the gospel of the Old Testament, and for good reason. There must be peace with God or there only remains warfare. That's why chapter 40 really is the turn of the tide in the book of Isaiah. So how exactly will this pardon come? Well, you can see it, can't you? You can see the beginnings of the whisper of the rumor of it here in verses 3 through 11. These verses are well known to us. We often recite them at Christmas. But how strange they must have seemed to Israel in exile when there was not yet any Jerusalem nor cities of Judah. They are told, one day a herald will come who will proclaim the means of your pardon. But there can be no doubt as to the importance of what is being said. That is the only comfort for them and for us in the gospel. Second, God's only nature to us, verses 12 through 26. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Verse 18. If the first danger which we've just looked at, as Judah described in her stubbornness, through her consistent refusal to listen to God, is that we would look for any other rescuer other than God. That is the history of Israel. They would always try to avoid having to depend upon God and his mercy. That's true of you and me. If Jesus means a rescue for our sin, then we will try to avoid sin at any cost. The second danger, however, is that we will then forget how unique God is as our rescuer and cease then to look to him as our only rescue. The 18th century French philosopher Voltaire said quite regularly that if God doesn't exist, it is necessary to invent him. The curious thing is that Voltaire didn't say that out of any attempt to do away with God. He was a firm believer in God, but only a God who was at far distance, a God who didn't speak, a God who offered no opinion, a God who had written no scripture, a God who was the designer, but a God who had no opinion about the fate of human beings. He was no friend to Christianity, but he did believe in this unknowable, distant creator. And as such, he treated God as a kind of social utility. God does exist, but he doesn't speak. And so we have to do his part for him. And in saying that, Voltaire expressed something that, again, is very common to human beings we would much rather step in for God and say what we think he would say or what we prefer he would say as part of our continuing rebellion against him. In four ways, you'll see here in this text, then God speaks to how humans try to stand in for him or make up for him. But their attempt to replace him does nothing to solve the fundamental problem of our warfare with him. So, verses 12 through 14. There's the person who presumes what God would think, or how God would act, or judging these things criticizes God, whether they believe him to be real or not. I was going to suggest here Christopher Hitchens, or Sam Harris, but I'd have to add Steve Constable. What are you doing, God? Who do you think you are, God? How can you do this to me after all I've done for you? And then verses 15 to 17, the person who puts their trust in the rival force of what human, political, military, or technological power might achieve. If you don't believe this is going on now, I don't think you are listening to the 21st century. This is the new gospel that we have been given. God's name is never mentioned, but salvation is regularly offered to us, and our society has taken it up, hook, line, and sinker. I think these verses are best heard, at least that's the way I heard them when Ian Charlson read them in Chariots of Fire, but the nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him as less than nothing and vanity. And who is that speaking of? It's speaking equally of the West as it would of the East. We tend to think of ourselves as a pretty big deal. But here, as if we needed it, is the reminder, as Abraham Lincoln said, the question is not as God on our side, but are we on his? When the Assyrian hordes stood in front of Jerusalem's walls and a pagan general defied God and threatened Israel's destruction, they quaked in their boots, or at least in their sandals. But here is the answer to that worry. Do not be afraid, God says, because of the words that you've heard. Think about that in terms of what's being said now in our culture. Lebanon, the whole of Lebanon, with all of its trees, would not suffice for fuel for the sacrifice of God, nor are his beasts enough for a burnt offering for his worship. In other words, you and I have no idea about the God that we are tempted to forget in the face of all of the pronouncements of our culture today about how the church is passé. Don't be impressed, Isaiah is saying. God threw him by the threatening capacity of national power or by the posturing of political parties or the popular antagonism to the church of culture and society through social media. The church has always been frightened by these things. The church has always run, it seems, to look for for sanctuary in the popular pronouncements or ideas of its day. But here is the warning. We are to make our allegiance again with the God who has loved us, with the God who has owned us and to whom we belong. We're not to put our trust in the rival force of what the world would offer. Or in verses 18 to 20, the idol maker, who's typically the religious professional who pretends he can recast God in a more acceptable form, Idolatry, after all, still goes on. Our hearts are constant idol factories, as John Calvin said. There was a popular book many years ago, in the year I was born, written by a trendy Anglican bishop by the name of John Robinson. It was a book which rocked the 1960s. It was called Honest to God. This is what Robinson said. I think he said it in the wake of the Harringay revival under Billy Graham. He said, let's stop thinking of God as being a person apart from ourselves. Let's stop thinking about God as a supreme being who, who enters into a relationship with us which is comparable to that of a human friendship. Instead, he said, let's just recognize that God is the personal ground of our experience, whatever that meant. What, is, what was John Robinson doing? Well, he was doing no better than someone with a block of stone and a chisel in the Iron Age. And so in our own day, we are to resist holding on to scripture and the gospel. We're to resist the efforts to recast God in some form other than the one he has given us through his word. Or finally, verses 21 through 26, the person who denies that God is sovereignly in control of this world and of nature. Wherever you stand on climate change or the theology of pandemics or plagues and infectious diseases or wherever you stand on some of the the vibrant disagreements of our own day. For the Christian, there is no doubt of two things. A, God is in charge of even this fallen world. And B, God's sovereign control extends. We can read it here. Not only across the great distances of space, the vastnesses of it, but also to the minutest details of what he will take care of, even yours and my life. To translate this, not one of the hundreds of billion trillions of stars is missing when God pays attention to it. He sits, notice verse 22, not at a disinterested distance far from us, but above the very circle of the earth. How did Isaiah know that this was a circle, a sphere, without a satellite to show him. God sees our grasshopper lives, and yet spreads out the tent of his glory before us because we matter to him. The last year has shown us that we all have different fears and convictions about these things. I've been astonished by how breadth, even in our own church, how vast the breadth of political opinion is, or of responses to the questions of our day particularly about the danger of nature. But there can be no doubt, be it asteroids from space or viruses from some swamp or animal or Chinese laboratory, that nature, like everything else, belongs to God. It serves him. We are to steward and care for creation, but we cannot affirm that nature is the God to be worshipped. Although we are somehow under its independent threat. What should we do when we are frightened by the power or the ridicule of the world? I think it does some good to remember our history. You know, Voltaire was the most popular man of his day in Paris. And John Robinson was greatly admired by the intellectuals at whose parties he attended. But they both died. And they each went to the judgment of God, as you and I must. Twice in this chapter, we are warned not to hitch our wagon to the cultural shibboleths of our day or to the personalities who make such a wake. We're told, verse 24, the tempest will carry them off like stubble, like hay that's left after harvesting. Let's not be too quick to run after the world, to seek its approval, or to simply agree with what our friends might be saying at one particular moment on Facebook. When God is looking for those whose hearts are truly His, He's looking to the church. You know, this is the time that tries our own soul. This time of disagreement, of shifting positions within the church, of questioning basic foundational aspects of our theology. This is the time that will discern how our generation will hear the gospel. Will the church stand up for him? Will we hold firm to what he has shown us in the Bible and through the person of his son? And finally, God's only people, which is us. Verses 27 through 31, I'm struck by these words. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. It's striking, isn't it, what a direct contradiction this is to what John A.T. Robinson said about God's disinterest in human affairs and human relationships, and humans themselves. What do we read here? Don't say, my way is hidden to God. Who says that? God says that. Don't say that, he says. The expression, my right here, means what is fair. How can you say, God says, that I don't care about what is fair and what is best for you? I do care, verse 11. I do care about you. To my mind, this is much of the power of the reformed idea of the intention of God to pay specifically for his people's sins at the cross. We're told in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for for who? For her. So this morning, in a world of anxiety, who have you got looking out for you? Who, Who is determining the world as it should go? Who longs for you to know that he is for you? It is God himself not distant, not removed, not waiting to see how it will all play out because he has no idea what will happen. No, a sovereign God speaks to our generation of the church and says, stick with me, hold with me, hold with my word by faith. Hold together in the grace that's been given to you in Jesus Christ. So, in closing, I want to leave you with this gospel lens, which may be a way of applying the way we see all of our situations and opportunities, our disagreements and our discussions. I've been giving a good deal of thought to the things that the church in general is disagreeing about in our day, as many of you have. Issues of justice, issues of politics, issues of race. Issues of freedom, issues of fear, and issues of danger. And I wonder if the answer isn't in many ways here. Not to resolve those particular issues, perhaps, to answer one way or the other. Not even necessarily to put us all on the same page. But to give us a way again of dealing with each other and with these issues in a gospel way. Why? Well, because we've been told we are no longer at war with God. We are uh, no longer at war with each other. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? We're not at war because we have peace through the cross of Jesus. It is that peace, the peace that binds us in the church, the peace we offer the world through the gospel, which is still the only answer to man's foremost problem. And so in that light, I want to offer you the following suggestions as to how to navigate disagreements with others. First, ride your tiger. This is Francis Schaeffer's old saying, act consistent with your convictions. People need to hear what you think. They do. But don't pursue those things in a way that contradicts the peace we have together in Christ. Secondly, don't give those things a priority which is ultimately greater than the priority need people have for peace with Christ. These things are of great importance to our society, and they have been, many of these issues, for hundreds of years. And the church does need to speak into them, but they are not the priority need. And pursue what God has placed on your heart because it may be that God has placed it there, but do so in a way that has already found its joy in the peace of Christ at the cross. You know, you'll find this truth in Scripture. It's been said that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Here is an opportunity for the church to speak powerfully because of the gospel into the disagreements of our own day, and offer not further dissension, but a peace that comes from submitting to the one who knows these things and calls us to live within his peace. You know, the temptation, I've found it many times myself before I forswore Facebook, is to turn up at some vibrant discussion that people are having and to say to oneself, well, I'm glad I'm here because now, with the next few words, I'm going to solve the issue and people will be amazed. (laughs) Of course, that's not true, and where it comes from is a heart of idolatry. There is only one answer to many of these issues, and that is that we love one another within the gospel of Jesus, and we treat one another with the love that has been shown to us at the cross, and we work in the hope of resurrection, not in feeling that all of these things are just up for grabs. So I commend to you Isaiah chapter 40. Here is the gospel. Here is the promise again of God's comfort. Let's pray. Lord, there's not a one of us in this room who isn't a beggar, who hasn't been shown where to find food by the Lord who loves us and as such we come not in pretense or pride not in arrogance or in claiming that our way is the only way but instead to tell people where we've been given that bread in the gospel and in the words of Jesus Lord would you help us this week in our small part to speak to the peace of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.